This episode is a mic swap. It's a concept I came up with back in 2017 at the very start of Shareable. I thought, what if I shared the mic and let my guests become the host and I became the guest of my own show? This simple swap has allowed my guest hosts to take the conversation in unique and unexpected directions, producing some amazing one-of-a-kind conversations that I never could have planned. The concept is so good, in fact, that plenty of my podcaster friends have taken the idea for themselves. So, I hope you enjoy this episode of Mike Swap. Jeff, having listened to uh, some episodes that you've done, I want to ask you a question. You've probably asked it before, but I want to go deeper with it. What is your superpower and how did you acquire it? Um, I like to think I have multiple superpowers, so I guess I'd have to pick one to even talk about. But um, I always like to go back to one that um, a friend of mine pointed out that he thinks that my my superpower is resilience and reinvention, like the ability to keep getting back up and reinventing myself and moving forward because it has been a pattern throughout my life. So that's one that I have talked about in the past, actually. So I think instead, I'm going to talk about a different one. I think one of my superpowers is communication. Um, the ability to understand how to frame an idea in a multitude of different circumstances uh, is something that I believe I have an above average ability. Um, and, and I think how I developed it was out of... Um, so I have ADHD and I'm on the autism spectrum and I read people because I have to, I don't necessarily always understand people, but I'm super curious about people. I'm always trying to understand what's behind things. I don't always pick up um, things that, that people don't say, but they mean. So, so I'm kind of like, I understand things that are very literal, but I don't always understand when somebody says something, but it's not what they meant. So I've been studying people my entire life. And it, I, even before I was diagnosed in new, um, what was going on with my brain. So because of that, I've studied people my entire life um, to try and understand how to make friends and how to fit in and how not to be misunderstood and um, how to be effective as a person. And um, I love writing. So I feel that a lot of the way I became a really good communicator was by writing. Um, it was my way of clarifying my thoughts. I was able to then go back and revise my thoughts and then you know, I started podcasting and, you know, speaking on stages and I kind of just started getting my hands in all methods of communication because it came somewhat naturally to me. It wasn't super difficult, but it was something that I feel like I honed and developed out of, um, out of a fear response of being misunderstood or shunned or not included. If we could, for the moment, acknowledge or believe that your diagnosis your ADHD and on the autism spectrum, if we could, if we could say that that was time limited, mm -hmm. that it existed in a period of time and maybe at some period of time, and maybe it's now that's over with. So if you took those, that diagnosis and put it aside, mm -hmm. how else would you describe yourself without that label? How would I describe myself without ADHD or autism? Yep. Um, mm -hmm. It's interesting because one of the things that happens for a lot of folks who have ADHD or autism, especially if it comes later in life, is you realize a lot of your personality were actually just uh, outgrowths of your neurotype. Like you, you think that, oh, I'm quirky in this way, but oh, no, no, it's actually just your brain works that way. Um, I guess if I were to, to move those things off the side and just kind of say like, what is at the root of Jeff? Like, who am I? Yep. Um, it's tough because it, it, 
I, I don't know how deep the tendrils go of ADHD and autism and what it's, I know that I have a very low tolerance of injustice. I like, I'm, I'm, uh, aggressively, um, intolerant of intolerance. I believe in standing up for what's right and, uh, standing up for people who are marginalized and, um, doing the right thing in life and protecting the environment. So like, there's a lot of, a lot there around injustice and doing the right thing. And, um, and it goes back to when I was a kid, you know, I have a whole thing about superheroes, but when I was a kid, I was really into Superman. And I remember just how much of an impact it made on me that like his home got destroyed. And then in the very first Superman movie, he lost Lois Lane and he had to turn back time to get her. And like, just all of these things about like, you have to basically be willing to sacrifice yourself and do whatever's necessary for the greater good. That's just been like a running theme in who I am for my entire life. And it would be hard to separate out either that or anything else about like, what is me versus um, what is a particular diagnosis? Because at the end of the day, all of those things are what make me, me. Yeah. Uh, makes total sense to me. A, a diagnosis is a framework to help us understand something so we can totally. hopefully we can improve upon it. Right. So in my experience with you, which is just in this last hour or so, I find your mind is highly organized I find that you've been extremely attentive and following everything that I say and 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 engaging with me like two dancers in a in a you know in a ballroom dance. And your mind is very, very abstract and able to actually take very abstract ideas and organize them in a way that's highly understandable and relatable to the audience and to me. So I'm wondering if somehow in all of the growth you've done, you have evolved maybe in some ways beyond the diagnosis, because I'm, I'm I'm seeing some things there that I don't normally associate with that diagnosis. And I see how another superpower that I see in you, you're extremely committed human being. It, it seems to me once you decide you're going to do something, you have an absolute commitment to doing it and you'll do it in the highest and best way possible, which feels like that's what you've done with the, with the conditions that you were dealt with. And maybe there is what what's called traumatic growth. So when a person has a trauma, and you know, I don't know if trauma was part of what what created the diagnosis. Uh, there is a, there is a, a traumatic growth that happens in some people. Like I mentioned about the fire that I had in the earlier episode, that was a growth experience. At, at initially, it was a trauma, and it was very debilitating. Yet at some point, when I saw the bigger picture of it, I was able to operate from the level of the soul and not the personality. It became a strength, and maybe maybe even one of the superpowers that I have. So. I'm just wondering if in your evolution, there is traumatic growth that's gone on and maybe you've evolved even beyond your own understanding of how, how far you've come. Um, I, I would say that there's areas of my life where I could look at the traumas that I've experienced and seen how it's affected me and then how I've unpacked and worked on that and how it's, you know, it's something I've worked through and, and have, uh, have developed some awareness about and, and maybe has helped me grow in some ways. I would say with regard to the ADHD and autism, I think it's similar to really anybody that you kind of, uh, I'll, I'll kind of look at it like this. I'm short, like I'm, I'm five foot five, right? So as much as I'd like to dunk, um, it's, it's a long shot, right? Like I got to lower the hoop or I got to be on a ladder. So to a certain extent, I learned to operate within the confines of this is what my, my physiological makeup is. I'm short. So I became a point guard instead of a center, right? So in the same way, I think that the ADHD and the autism for me, while 
in many circumstances, I present and I show a certain side of that. And there are strengths that come along with, for at least for me, the, the autism and the ADHD, there are strengths that come from it. And I've learned to round out some of those weaknesses. The weaknesses are still there and the disabilities are still there at times. I have sensory issues. I have executive dysfunction issues. I have a variety of other things and they may not show up in a podcast episode or um, at a networking event sometimes, but at other times they're debilitating and they, they stop an entire day. So I think what I would look at it as is that I've, I've learned to accept my boundaries and my limitations of what I'm good at, what I'm not, what I struggle with. And I've, and I have a very fortunate situation to be able to work in such a way where I can lean into my strengths and I can avoid a lot of the weaknesses. And because of that, I show up in a lot of ways and I can show up as a, a superhero, super excellent in certain things. Um, but there's a side behind it where, you know, there are days where I'm, I'm just, I get nothing done. There are days where I get 40 hours of work done in six hours. So that's the ebb and flow of, of how my brain works. So I think, um, you know, I don't think there's ever going to be an, an evolution for me out of ADHD or autism. They are always present there. They are always, uh, they are always how I'm seeing. It's the frame with which I see the world uh, and the way that I process the world. But I have learned a lot of how... Um, a lot of how that makes me come across and how I can lean into certain positive aspects of it and um, and shun away from some of the stuff that maybe doesn't work. So for as an example, you were just saying some things about uh, very being very engaging, right? So my ADHD masks my autism when it comes to engaging with people. The autism is part of what allows me to be very organized in my thought and very pattern, see a lot of patterns and recognize patterns. Um, so... And, and the ability to think abstractly kind of hits on both of those. But where my strengths lie are in pattern recognition and abstract thinking and, uh, you know, connecting the dots between different ideas. And I attribute a lot of that to the way that my brain works. So 40% of entrepreneurs have some form of ADHD, dyslexia. Or I'm surprised some it's that of, low. Uh, I thought it'd be higher. Well, look, not every not every entrepreneur is a creative entrepreneur. You know, yeah. there are entrepreneurs who uh, run accounting firms and who run law firms, and Fair. you know, yeah. like not necessarily creative entrepreneurs. So it's it, it's way higher than than you see in in, in the natural population. So one of my uh, hypotheses is that people who have neurodiversity have a constraint when they go to school because school really values memory. It values repetition. It values staying in a very confined space, right? So when you're a child, you're learning with your whole body, with all of your senses, five senses, or I believe in six senses. Yep. Suddenly, when you're in first grade, you go from learning and touching and tasting and smelling and having all of this very diverse way of learning. You're sitting in a chair, and now you're learning strictly with your brain, Yep. you know, with your mind, okay? That is traumatic for yeah. many, many kids, right? So uh, a lot of the freedom that comes with acknowledging your neurodiversity, which you have, is understanding that everybody operates in the world differently. And when you understand your superpower, your limitations, you can actually do an amazing things, which it sounds like you, you have done, right? So if you get to the point where you say, you know what, there is a day when I need to rest my brain. I need to just rest my brain. I'm not going to do anything. I'm actually going to enjoy doing nothing. 
because I know that that is priming me for the next day where I'm going to get a whole lot done and really enjoy it. I'll be in flow. Yep. If you're in that day and you're feeling guilty about it or stressed or not doing that and fighting it, that's a very unproductive day, right? But if you are actually saying, you know what? I get a day when I'm just going to glide and do some meditation, do some other stuff that I don't have to use my brain because tomorrow I'm going to be really going fast and, and floating around. So it sounds like you're really on a, on a wonderful track to own your neurodiversity, you know, the, the uniqueness of you and how you operate and use it very well. I, I would agree with that. And, and I just want to, um, you know, I have to call out that I'm very lucky and I'm very privileged, um, you know, I have the privilege, but also I'm in a privileged position that I actually get to have that opportunity. So I, you know, you heard my episode where I spoke with my business partner and my business partner and I, we are very open about neurodiversity in general. And she leans into my superpowers and she accepts my limitations. And I think I'm very lucky to be in that sort of an environment. And I'm also lucky that I get to work for myself. So I don't have to really answer to anyone. I mean, I answer to my clients, but even with my clients, I'm very open and they are very excited to take advantage of the gifts that I have. And they understand that it comes with other conditions to it, that there's, it's not going to be eight hours a day. That's just not how it works. So, um, you know, I, I think for anybody that's out there that is neurodiverse, I, I hope that you try and, um, you know, love your brain, love yourself. I realize it's not, not everybody comes with different levels of, um, disability and capability, that come with it. But, you know, my hope is that we just create a world that's more accepting and understanding and accommodating to everyone, regardless of how their, uh, their brains operate. But you're right. I, I've, uh, I've found a way to kind of lean into it and take advantage of the good and try not to beat myself up too badly about the bad. So Jeff, going back to the, the three ways that we grow our consciousness that I talked about in the previous episode. So one are things that happen to us that serendipity or synchronicity or whatever you want to call that. There are things that we choose, like our business partner, the college we go to, our spouse. And then there are the spiritual practices we talked about that kind of evolve our consciousness, meditation, yoga, activities, and so forth. So can you think of one thing that's happened to you? Uh, I, I'll ask you the same question you asked me because I think yeah. it's really relevant in our discussion. Something that happened to you that at first you thought was terrible and then you learned that it was actually an important growth step in your life from tragedy to trauma to transcendence. Yeah. You know, the, the first one that jumps to mind is, um, getting fired. Um, I was at a PR firm and I was a VP uh, or a director. I forget which I was a director and I was there for about 10 or 11 months and I got fired. And this was back in like 2010. Um, and, you know, it was scary and it sucked. And I thought, you know, I had just come out of my MBA a few years before that. And I thought, you know, I'm finally going to be a grown up now. I'm finally going to get my act together and I'm going to have real jobs. I'm going to make good money and I'm going to grow and climb and all those things. And um, and it was a wake up call that like, I'm just not meant to do this, um, to have a job that is. And, and again, like, I was scared. I'm, I have my box of stuff from my cubicle and I'm in a cab and I get a call from one of my clients that I had had while I was at the PR firm. And he said, you know, what's going on? And I said, well, I just got let go. And he was like, well, where are you going? And I was like, I'm going home. He was like, no, I mean, like what's next? Like, I want to continue working with you. And I started my company the very next day. I mean, it was a weekend, so I 
named my company over the weekend at a diner, but I launched on Monday and I had my company for them for seven years, got acquired by a larger agency. Getting fired was one of the best things that ever happened to me. And I'll tell you, I, when I got acquired by the larger agency after seven years and I was there for a year and a half, I was miserable because I had a boss again. I mean, I was part of the ownership team, but like I had other people, I had to, it wasn't mine. So those experiences where things fell apart when I tried to be someone I wasn't or do something that I couldn't, it just gave me more strength to deal with the struggles of doing it my way because it's not easy working for myself all the time, but I would rather do this. I would rather struggle a lifetime doing things for myself than work for somebody for a, a week. Yeah, so it's a great example. And I, I, what I want to point out about that example is you saw the opportunity and something came to you, your client came to you and kind of put it in your face, right? And you quickly understood there was a deeper reason that you got fired. And you said, you know what, this isn't a, a tragedy. It maybe felt traumatic and I'm going to transcend it. I'm actually going to realize I'm not meant to work for anybody else. I need to do what I need to do. Yep. Right. So going back to that wisdom, that inner voice, how do you cultivate that wisdom in yourself so that you can be as conscious and aware as possible so you can have your best life and be the best, have the best impact that you can have? I think what's occurring to me is that I move at a very high speed. So I'm I'm not sure I do a lot of slowing down to think, but I think that my slowing down to think happens when I'm doing some things at very high speed. Like my meditation happens at like 145 beats per minute, basically. So when I'm thinking about the times in my life where I'm making decisions or when uh, I've transcended something that was not great in my life and, and I'm trying to listen to that voice, I think it all comes back to the fact that I'm very clear on who I am. I think self-awareness is the the foundation to even doing that work. So you could sit for you could sit in a cave for a year. If you don't know who you are and what's important to you and where you're trying to go with your life, then it, it you could sit in that cave for the rest of your life and you still may never figure it out. You might come up with some ideas and you think that that's it, but but until you have actually done the work to figure out what you're about, and maybe that is the work. Maybe sitting in the cave is doing the work. I don't know. But I, I just know that throughout my entire life, I've always been very directed about who I am, what I want to do, and I would just go chase that thing. And when I would fail, I would get right back up and I would pick the next thing and I would move in that direction. So for me, anytime I've been hit with a setback, something's happened to me, I always try to just go back to who I am and what I'm trying to do in this world. And And you and I share a very profound respect for the impermanence of existence that we don't have very long here. Uh, my dad was a funeral director and I grew up around death my entire life. And early on in my life, uh, I was, you know, it was all very impressed upon me that like you only get one shot. Right. And I remember in my teens, I had like a little angsty teenage depression and I watched dead poet society and Robin Williams as Mr. Keating uh, makes the beautiful point, all of these boys are worm food, right? That like they've all passed on, they live their life. What verse will you contribute? Like all of these ideas of carpe diem sees the day. And it made a profound impact on me. So I've always looked at it as um, I'm sort of playing against the clock. 
and I know what I'm out to accomplish. And I know I want to make sure that my life means something and I leave something behind, you know, legacy thinking. I'm, I'm just like you in that sense. I think a lot about it. What would people say at my eulogy? And when I hit a setback, part of the reason I'm able to get back up probably more quickly than I would have otherwise is that I'm clear on where I want to go. And I just can't sit for very long after that. I got to get back up. I got to go do something. I got to make an impact because that's what drives me impact. So that's why I get back up. So Jeff, on the days that you can't do those things, you said you've got days you're functioning at high, high speed, and some days you just can't do anything. Are those days of reflection where you're able to slow down and say, hey, uh, somehow my brain stopped me today and I want to just sort of reflect on what's really important. What am I learning? What do I need to do next? It depends. Sometimes, yeah. Um, I had one recently where I just knew I hadn't gotten enough sleep. And when I don't get mm -hmm. enough sleep, like the weight of the world rests on my shoulders. I see everything that's wrong with the world. I get you know, anxious or sad or depressed. And I just know like what I really need is a nap. <laughs> like more than anything, mm -hmm. I just know that's why. Yeah. So if I can get past that, then I can use that day productively. Even if I'm not going to get a lot accomplished, I know in my heart that there are going to be days where I get nothing accomplished. And I also know that there's going to be days where I do an ungodly amount of work in a period mm -hmm. of time that people would find remarkable. But that's the trade-off with the way this brain works is that I'm going to have periods of hyper-focus and productivity and I'm going to have time where I'm off. And I would say it's probably a 50-50 split between whether I lean into that time off and just say, you know what? Today's a video game day. Today I'm going to read. Today I'm going to go for a walk outside. And that's when I'm in my healthiest mental state. And mm -hmm. then there's the other times where maybe there's external pressures that I'm paying too much attention mm -hmm. to. Mm -hmm. I have deadlines. I have things I got to get done. Those are the days where it becomes a little bit less diff a little less um, easy to just lean into that time because now I'm resenting that my brain does this. I'm, mm. I'm, it's getting in the way. But if it doesn't get in the way, if the if the externalities aren't making my brain get in the way of something that's important, then I can appreciate that time off and use it to recharge. So it's the ability to surrender to the now, what's yeah. happening in the now. Yeah. So, you know, if you think about it, you know, in, in the days of hunter-gatherers, and, you know, we've, we've been hunter-gatherers way, way, way longer than, you know, we were farmers or we were in the industrial era or, or in the technology era. You know, the, the hunter-gatherers would work 15 hours a week. That's That was their work week. And the rest of the time, they would just hang out or they would be with their families. They would they would eat. They would sleep, right? So the whole idea that we have a structured day that is even remotely like nine to five is only the last few seconds of our history, right? Yep. So if, if history was a thousand page book, right? And this guy named Tim Urban, who just wrote an amazing book called What's Our Problem? He says, if history was a thousand page book, everything that we know in the modern world happens on page 999. Yep. All right. So we somehow think that the life we're in now, even in the last 200 years, is anything remotely like our human nature. While human nature was hunter gatherers for, you know, thousands of times more than it's been, you know, we're actually, uh, you know, farmers or workers or, you know, whatever we call ourselves today. Yeah. I always think it's interesting when um, a lot of people are saying right now, What's the point of it all? Like, why are we doing all this? Why are we spending so much time in front of our email? Why are we spending so much time doing BS jobs that don't really matter? And I think it's interesting because when you phrase it in the in like the thousand page book context, 
it becomes all the more real of like, well, why are we doing all this stuff? Like, what's this all for? Especially when you look at all the negative things that are happening uh, in the world, you wonder like, what, what's the point of the whole thing? And then you blow it out and you go, you know what? It's not always going to be like this. And probably the reason why we're so many people are right now reacting and pulling away from the current state of things is because we weren't built to sit in cubicles. We weren't built to sit in front of Zoom all day. We want to go outside and enjoy the sunlight. We want to spend time with our communities and our loved ones. And we're just not getting a lot of opportunity to do that. And I think we're we're going to hit a point where there's going to be a backlash against what we're currently experiencing. And I think it's starting to it's starting now. Well, I think there, there has been a backlash e even at the very beginning of COVID. It started and it's just getting deeper and deeper. I think people are in a kind of purpose crisis. So a lot of people's anxiety is is not what it used to be, fear of success, fear of failure. It's it's like, what is my life meant to be? Like, what is my purpose here? Which is in the end, a good thing, right? But it, yeah. in, 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 when you're in the middle of it, it can be difficult. So whenever I get, if I, if I don't get that way very often, but when I do, I just go and I, and, and I, I watch my granddaughter wake up and then I realize what's it all about. <laughs> it's, like, yeah. it's about her ability to smile and her ability to put on a new pair of pajamas and her ability to eat a food she's never had before. And, you know, that for me to be able to support my daughter and my son-in-law and my, my grandchildren, that's, that certainly makes it clear for that moment. What's all, what it's all about. That tracks for me, man. One of my favorite parts of the day is picking my daughter up from school. She runs yeah. out, she gives me a great big hug. I ask her about like what she did. It's, it's like my favorite part of the whole yeah. day. Like no matter what's going on, I could be having a good day, a bad day. doesn't matter when she smiles. I smile. There you go. So as we uh, move to close out the uh, this episode, uh, I want to thank you for being my guest. And I want to thank the audience uh, for being a great audience. And whatever you learn today, I hope that you will make it shareable. So tell me, what was most valuable or useful for you in this episode? Send me a message or hit me up on social media. I'm easy to find, but there's links in the show notes just to make it easy. Seriously, I'd love to hear from you. If you enjoyed this episode, there's a couple things you could do, starting with subscribing to the show. And after that, head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate the show five stars and leave a review. Consider sharing this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. Or just buy me a latte or an old-fashioned by hitting up that tip jar. If you're looking for a good book to read, may I suggest The Lovable Leader? which covers how to build great teams with trust, respect, and kindness. It's built exclusively for brand new managers, and it's a handbook that will serve you well in your journey of leadership. Just search for Lovable Leader wherever books are sold online. And finally, if you're interested in working with me or checking out any of my other projects, go to jgibbard.com. That link, as well as every other link mentioned, will be found in the show notes. Stay safe, be kind, and seriously, share this episode with someone. I'll see you on the next episode of Shareable. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm.